Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. This morning we're going to be in the book of Malachi, which is a book in the Old Testament. The Old Testament begins with Genesis and it ends with Malachi. And then you go from Malachi into the New Testament, into the book of Matthew. So if you're not familiar with your Bible, you can use the table of contents and look for Malachi. Or you can, if, if you get to Matthew, then you've gone too far. Just head back the other way. If you don't own a Bible, there's some Bibles placed around the room. We want you to have a Bible. So take that Bible, write your name in. It's our gift to you. We showed a video a few weeks ago here. And so I just want to kind of keep re-updating our church family. So those of you that call GCC your home and this your church home, we officially hired Mark McKay, who was up here leading worship this morning a few weeks ago. And so he is going to be overseeing the children's ministry and discipleship ministries, which would include set up and tear down, uh, which would help uh, oversee gospel communities in some of these areas. And so we've seen Mark's gifts and they lend themselves towards leadership development. And he does uh, phenomenal at that and raising up leaders and discipling people is very intentional. So we're thankful to have him on and working for the church to be able to to do that. So if, if you guys have not met him yet, he was up here leading worship this morning. He does that from time to time. Please uh, shake his hand and Welcome him on board because he'll be working for the church full time. So again, welcome Mark. So, All right, Malachi chapter 2. We're going to be uh, in verse 17 is where we'll start and then we'll do part of chapter 3. Originally, I was going to do all of chapter 3, but we're going to break it up. And so we will finish the book of Malachi next week. And then we're going into a new series called Tracing the Root. I'm excited about that. We're going to spend four weeks lo- looking at this. The series Tracing the Root is going to be looking at root sins and, and tracing them down to the root. And so what we mean by that is oftentimes jealousy can appear in someone's life for two totally different reasons. So some people can be jealous because there's something driving that to where they feel the need to have someone's approval to be in control. Other people can be uh, jealous because they long to have power. And so what we're actually going to look at is these four root issues or four source issues that drive a lot of our surface sin. And so it's going to be called Tracing the Root, and we're going to look at four. So next week we'll wrap wrap up Malachi, and then we'll transition into that. We're going to look at four. It'll be power control, approval, and comfort. I'm really excited about that as our church takes a four-week series to do that. Going into the fall, we will jump from there into the book of 1 Corinthians. And so I'm excited about that. That's where we're headed as a church this fall, the rest of the summer and on to this fall. So this morning, I'm going to look at Malachi starting with chapter 2, verse 17, and read through verse 6 of chapter 3. So follow along with me. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil in the sight of the Lord, and, uh, sorry, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will will sit as a refiner and purifier of, of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are all here, alive, and you've given us sunshine, you've given us air, um, but Father, you've given us all life. Father, I, I, I thank you that, uh, that you've given us your word to teach us about a life that's greater, eternal life. I praise you that your word is living, that it's active, active. Father, that it's authoritative, that you speak to us through it. And that's what we ask this morning, that you do, Heavenly Father, that you speak and that we would listen. I pray that you would drown out the distractions that are here now, the troubles and the worries that our life, uh, j j just worries that our life have. I pray you would calm us and ready us to hear from you. I pray through your spirit you would speak this morning. I pray, Jesus, you are the exalted king and hero of this passage, of this church, and of all that we do. I pray we would exalt and worship you. Teach us through your word this morning. Correct us through your word this morning. And I pray that we would not harden our hearts when, you, uh, when we hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our church has been in the book of Malachi now. This is our fourth week, and like I said, we will be in it for one more week. The, the book of Malachi can be an interesting and, and difficult book book at first glance to understand. But what the book of Malachi is actually doing and what it's teaching is this, is that there's this group of people called the Israelites, and they are now living in this time called the uh, uh, post-exile, which means this, that for a season of their lives during the, king, uh, during the reign of King David, they had this just beautiful season of life to where Israel was on top. They, they, they had this king who was leading the nation. And they were at a good spot. After that, the kingdom was divided. And then they were taken over by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. And they were carried off into exile for seven years. But then they were released. And so now they are post-exile. They are released and they've gone back to their homeland. And what they've done is they've rebuilt the temple. Because we can see that through the language here. Is they've started to rebuild the temple. And what we can see is this frustration that the Israelites have. Because now they've gone back, they're in their homeland, they've built the temple, but things aren't like they think they should be or they ought to be. And so they're frustrated. In their eyes, it seems like, well, we're doing the right things. We're rebuilding the temple. We're, we're, we're offering up some sacrifices. We're, we're, we're going through the motions. We're doing the rituals. We're doing the stuff. But we are still poor. We are still frustrated. We are still hurting. And we are still in a lot of pain. And so now we're frustrated. This book, uh, as, uh, as well as with Haggai and uh, Zechariah, are, are, uh, is one of the three post-exilic books. And through it, we can see this. We can start to see the heart of what's going on with the nation of Israel. But we can also trace their history back. We can look at what's going on in the present. We can also see the promise of the future Messiah to come. We've titled this series Empty Religion because... What they are doing and what they are offering is just empty religion. What, what it is is just going through the motions. It's just empty 
religious rituals that they're offering and that they're doing that they're going through the motions in. And the reality is, is this, is that Malachi, if you slow down, speaks to our heart and our culture and especially to the Christian culture today. If you slow down and, 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 and read what it says and read it interactively, it's difficult to read. And to be frank, probably a lot of people don't want to read it, don't like to read it, because it is very direct. And it is getting to the heart of what we commonly do or what's become normal to us. The way that we are just offering up empty religion, the way we are just going through the motions, the way we are just living our lives. And then the reality is this, is they are frustrated because things aren't the way they thought they should be. Their frustration is with God. And nowadays, when things don't go the way we think they should be, where do we, as Christians, put our frustration toward? With, with God. We do the same thing. As the author of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. We see this in actually Psalm 73. The psalmist is frustrated, and the psalmist says this. Uh, Psalm 73, verse 11, you don't have to turn there. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and they're always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long. And throughout the beginning of Psalm 73, the psalmist is frustrated. Why? Because he's like, hey, look over here. The wicked are the ones prospering. The wicked are the ones thriving. The wicked are the ones that actually uses the word fat, meaning they had plenty of food to eat. But not me, not us. We're suffering. We're in a lot of pain. And we're frustrated. And I would say that there's many people in here who, who, who could say that today, who have gone through that. There are people who today would say, why, why? What's the point? Like, like Israel here. Read verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil in the sight of the Lord Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Move forward in the text with me to verse 13. Because they also say this. You'll have to jump forward a little bit. This is the Lord speaking again through, through the prophet Malachi. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What's the prophet? of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed, evildoers, not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Let's go back to 17. What's going on here? They're frustrated. And they're asking these questions. What is the point of doing good? What is the point of being good? What is the point of following God? What is the point of all this? I'm trying here. I'm striving here. We're doing my best here. And clearly God doesn't care. God's not seeing all the good that I'm doing. And so they're frustrated. And, and, and honestly, there's, there's probably people here this morning to where you showed up and church is something where you're saying, all right, God, I want a change in my life and so I'm going to go to church, I'm going to try this, and I'm going to do this. And, 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 and in essence, if that's your motive because you're going to church because you need God to just give you or bless you something, I would say that's empty religion. Or if you're here and, and you're saying, what's the point? What's the point of doing good? In fact, I've tried purity out. And there's other people that haven't. And they got rings on their finger and wedding dates. What's the point? My marriage is failing. 
My life is in disaster. My health is sinking. I'm struggling. I'm hurting. Our kids are in a state of crisis. What is the point of doing good? Is there any point at all in doing good? Does God see? Does God notice? I'm frustrated. And the reality is, is that more than many of us would like to admit, we probably have a little bit of a prosperity gospel inside of us. Because when we do stuff for God and we expect God to do good stuff back, then what we're saying is, I've done this. Look, it's pretty awesome. Now here's how you respond and bless me. And then when God doesn't respond like that, then we get mad and we're like, well, then what's the point? Fundamentally missing what the gospel message ever was, that it's not about your works and your effort. And here, they're angry. And they ask this question at the, at, at the end of verse 17, where is the God of justice? That's what they say. Where is the God of justice? And here's the thing. Do you know that we always want justice? We cry for it. Justice. As long as it's for everyone else. But when it comes to us, we cry for mercy. We always want justice. Where's the God of justice? Doesn't he see all this messed up stuff going on? Where is he? But when it comes to us, we... We want mercy. Here's the thing. We have an acute sense of justice because we're created in God's image. I would say that's actually a good thing. We see stuff that's wrong. We know what's wrong. And if someone committed an egregious crime, murdered someone, murdered an entire family, and they stood before the jury, and they're like, sorry. And, and the jury's like, well, he said sorry. They're good to go. We would be like, no way. Like, that just doesn't cut it. Our youngest, I've told stories about her before, but she does that. She does stuff that we tell her not to do, and she's like, sorry, and she says it like that. Lists and all. And, and, and we're like, it just doesn't cut it. <laughs> but there is no heart to what she is doing. It is just empty. It's just her going through the motion of her saying sorry. We long for justice. The point of this morning's sermon is this, is that you cannot stand. You cannot stand. Because in the end, you cannot stand means this, that everyone is going to be found out. Any fraud that we are is going to be found out. Anything that we're doing, it's going to be found out. And when we just try to externalize actions or, 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 or do something externally through our actions to try to make up for the deadness that is inside of us, that's empty religion. A while back, true story, wish it wasn't, I was at Costco, and I parked in the handicap parking, okay? First mistake. Uh, honest mistake, wasn't aware that I was parked there. Uh, but when we, were loading up in <laughs> when we were loading up into our car, there was an elderly couple that actually looked very handicapped that needed the spot. And so they, I don't know if they were circling or what, but they were waiting there for us to get out, and I felt awful. I'm like, oh, geez. So I'm loading up the stuff in the car, but I got to put my cart away. And in that moment, I did what any spiritually mature person would do, is I developed a subtle limp. Yeah, I did. And, and, and I, what I did in that moment, and my wife is like, you are ridiculous. And those are three words I hear from my wife daily. But, but I felt so bad, I was like, what I need to do is I need to deal with my guilt right now and the way that I feel with some sort of external action, and that's empty. This, guys, give me a break. This is a long time ago. It was like June. So, 
But I did that as a way to deal with something. And that's what's going on here. Is they're pleading for justice, but they're not actually seeing this. And please listen. They're not actually, they're not actually seeing their own deep need for, for, for justice. They're actually not seeing their own wrong. They're not seeing their own faults, the way that they are frauds, the, the way they have been unjust. They're not seeing any of this. And so they ask this question, where's the God of justice in, in frustration? Look at chapter 3, verse 1, the word behold. You know that word in, 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 in the Hebrew? Literally, it's translated this, here I am. Here I am. They say, where's the God of justice? And God responds back with, here I am. Think about that. Just let that sit this morning. Here I am. You want to know where the God of justice is? I'm right here. And you know that for Christianity, we can say that God actually faithfully upheld that because Christ stepped into our world and said, I'm right here. You want justice? I'm here. And, and, and he goes on to say, behold, I'm here. I send my messenger. The word messenger is actually the word Malachi because Malachi means messenger. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So he says this, I am here. I'm sending my messenger. Why were messengers sent? Kings would send messengers out ahead. Why? Because the, uh, these messengers would go out in front of the king, in front of his people, and they would clear the roads. And, and, and they would say, make way, the king is coming. And, and he's saying, hey, I am here. In fact, I've sent my messenger. In fact, Malachi is here is telling them, clear the way why because the lord whom you seek this god of justice you so desperately want guess what he is coming and at this point they're like yes he's coming the lord is coming and then he actually says i'm i'm actually coming to the temple and they would have thought that is wonderful news the the lord who you seek the lord of justice he's coming to the temple why because they wanted this messiah to come to the temple to set up his shop and reign and rule over all the nations so they could once again be back at the top that's what they wanted and god was the means for them to get there so he says behold i'm here i'm sending my messenger to prepare the way i'm coming i'm coming to the temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight it doesn't sound like they're delighting in god but he's saying hey this person of justice that you seek and in, in, in whom you're delighting in what you are actually wanting just know he's coming he's coming to the temple and verse 2 says this because right now here's the pause moment yes he's coming this is when the hero shows up in the movie and then it says this, but who can endure the day of his coming? And this is where we get the point of the sermon today. And who can stand when he appears? Uh-oh. So they're like, where is this God? He's like, behold, I'm here. In fact, I'm coming. Clear the roads. Make way. I'm coming. I'm coming to the temple. I'm coming. But just know that on the day when I come, who, who, who can stand? Who can endure? The God of justice you want, he's coming and he's coming. But who's going to be able to stand? And I would say, you cannot stand, we cannot stand when the God of justice and judgment comes. He goes on to say in the latter part of verse 2, he says, For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like pure gold, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. This is language that we are not super familiar with. But it says this, that when he appears, what's going on? It's going to be a painful experience. 
because what, what, what fullers were is they were actually cleaners. And so they would use this alkaline type soap, a really strong soap to wash out all the stains in garments. And so they would be scrubbed painfully. So this refinement process is not this like really pretty sweet process. It's actually a painful experience. That's what he's saying. He's like, I'm coming. You want justice? I'm coming. But you can't stand. You will not be able to stand on the day when I come. And in fact, it's going to be like that painful washing that fullers do. You know what else it's going to be like? It's going to be like refinement of gold and silver. How does that happen? You heat up a furnace really hot, you put in the metals, and then they are separated from what's pure and impure. It's not, these are painful processes that are used through fire and through heat and through scrubbing and washing and cleansing. He's saying, who's going to be able to stand in that day? What he's saying is this, is when I come, I'm going to expose everyone. Not just Rick Reeves for the fraud that limps around Costco that he is. I'm going to expose everyone. That everyone in this room is desperately in need of grace. I'm going to expose everyone for all that they are. That there are no Mary Poppins. That there are no perfect people. That everyone is desperately in need of grace. I'm going to expose that. When I show up, I'm going to expose. In fact, I will expose where your priorities are at. I will expose the way that you say with your mouth that you are for the kingdom of God, but spend more time doing your hobbies and working on businesses and ventures than anything else. I will expose your pride, the way you sit in judgment over people. I will expose the way you wear two masks, one on, on Sunday and one throughout the week. I will expose the way that you treasure beauty and materialism over the kingdom of God. I will expose what you worship. I will expose the way that everyone is a fraud. I will expose these things. I will expose empty religion and the way that you offer up sacrifices with your mouth that come from a heart that is not full of worship. I will come and I will be exposing what we worship and whether we are what we say we are or we're not. And then right now you could say, um, like the Israelites, can we get back to the problem? Because the problem is not me. I'm pretty solid. And the problem that we were complaining about is all the wicked people. Do you know that we all do this? We all put ourselves in, in a category of people around us. I preached at uh, the prison a couple years ago on the tax collector and the Pharisee and how the one stood and beat his chest and pled for mercy before God, but the other one stood before God and thanked him that he was nothing like the other man. Do you know that after I preached that sermon, one of the inmates came up to me and said, hey, I do exactly what you said. I think I'm so much better than a lot of the people in here. I'm like, wow. I, I came, I, I, I came, he gave me a note, which we found out we weren't supposed to receive notes, but I was like, I don't know what to do with this. And uh, I'm not going to reject it <laughs> and then pray for him with my eyes closed. And so I took it and found out later that he was a serial killer who looks at other people and says, I'm thankful that I'm nothing like them. That's fascinating. And do you know that oftentimes our, our frustration in life focuses on this? Is as soon as we get caught up in everyone else's problems and forget how much grace that we desperately need, we can become frustrated. And the reality is, is the Israelites are like, hey, 
It could have been like, we were talking about all these wicked people. We're not the wicked people. We're the actually good ones that are doing good stuff. And God's like, no, 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 no. When I come, I'm going to expose. In fact, do you know what it says here? That he's going to start with the temple, which means this. He's going to start with the leaders. When God comes, he's going to start with the leaders of, of, of the temple. That, it, that, that he's going to start with Levi's family, lineage. He's going to bring it way closer to home than what we're comfortable with, meaning this, too. This is time for the church to wake up and listen as well. Look at verse 4. He says, Then the offering of Judah and, and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. So he's like, when I come, no one's going to be able to stand. And I'm going to bring refinement, which is going to be painful. But then after that, there's going to be offerings in righteousness and there's going to be a, a, a pleasing sacrifice that's made to the Lord as in the former years. And then he goes on to say this in verse 5. Just in case... There's people there or even now that are like, yeah, I'm good. Again, I'm talking about the wicked people. I've been good. God's not giving me what I deserve. Look at verse 5. <laughs> it's like this. Verse 4 was like you get a standing eight count, and verse 5 is going to bring it home. That's a sports analogy you probably missed, but that's all right. Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so look. Where's the God of justice? I'm right here. I'm coming. Who's going to be able to stand? No one's going to be able to stand because I'm going uh, to expose what's really in the heart of man. And then verse 5 says, I'm going to draw near and judge all of that. So all that's there, I'm going to actually bring judgment on. Well, what's there? We would look here at, at, at the list and say, here's the list that the Lord has given us. He starts with sorcerers. And there's probably a lot of you that are in this room that are like, okay, I'm good there. I, I don't dress goth. I'm not an emo. Don't have tarot cards. Witches and dragons, not my thing. And so I'm good. But one commentator says this. In its essence, sorcery is attempting to manipulate supernatural powers to serve our own ends. That means that people who try to use religion to serve themselves rather than giving themselves completely to God are effectively sorcerers. When we go to church as a means to make our lives run more smoothly, we are indulging in functional sorcery. When we pray as if God were our errand boy, whose job it is to solve all of our problems and give us the treasures on which our hearts are really fixated, we have engaged in sorcery. He explains, sorcery is attempting to manipulate supernatural powers to serve our own ends. That's sorcery. Adultery. Again, the religious and self-righteous in the room go, I'm fine, I'm good. We saw this in Jesus' day. But anyone who has lusted after another woman, Jesus would say, is an adulterer. But here's the thing. Anyone who has lusted for a romantic connection or intimacy beyond what they have with their spouse is guilty. The standard is not, well, my spouse did this, nor is the standard full-blown physical adultery. Looking to someone to fulfill something in you emotionally is adultery. Attention-seeking and flirting fit this because you are looking to someone other than your spouse to give you something that you are longing for. Or do you lust for another's lifestyle that they have with their spouse? The next one is liars. The language here, those who swear falsely, liars. Do you bend the truth to protect yourself? These are good questions that we need to wrestle, wrestle with. Are you honest at tax season? 
Is it really a write-off? Do we confess honestly with other people about what's going on in our lives? Or have we found some trite, superficial answer to give other people to make ourselves look better than what we need and to make it seem like we actually don't need the cross of Christ or the grace of God? Are we, in a sense, fake in our responses? He goes on to say employers. So employers who oppress the higher worker in his wages. What's this mean? Are you greedy or do you pay your workers well? Do the people who work for you need to work another job or do they look and understand that their employer is a gracious employer? It says oppression of the, uh, of, of the hired worker, but then the, the widow and the fatherless. Honestly, how are we doing at taking care of the widow and, 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 and the fatherless? This is what James defines as pure religion. How has our greed led us to not care for our brothers and sisters who are struggling around the world? Are we silent on matters of oppression? How are we supporting the mission field? And do we care about what, should, what we should care about? Or do we just care about what interrupts our nightly Netflix time? Like, like they, they, they are charging God of being unjust, but the reality is we can do that too, but are we seeing the injustice that we don't take action in doing a lot for what's going on around the world or any for what's going, anything for what's going on around the world? We are quick to throw stones at God. Do we take a self-evaluation? What about the sojourner? That means stranger. Do we invite those into our homes that can't pay us back, that can't return the favor? Being frank, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Are we? This doesn't, uh, hospi- the, the, the word hospitality means lover of strangers in, in, the, in the New Testament. This doesn't mean putting crackers in front of people. And cheese. It actually means loving strangers that are outside of the family of faith well. Then it goes on to say fear. Do you fear God? Do you think about how you have fallen short? Does God's justice put fear in you? Does His justice make you celebrate now? Or does it make you go, "Uh uh-oh? This is the list that God gives to the people. Why? Because they brought all their charges against God and said, here's how awesome we are. You should be doing this for us. And then what happened is this, is God says, I'm coming, but who's going to be able to stand? I'm going to expose everything and I'm going to bring judgment on this sort of stuff. And the reality is now we'd have to ask this question. How are we doing with just this short list that's provided for us here? Can we still look at God and go, I'm good and you're unjust. You should be taking care of my life. I should have a marriage. I should have a relationship. I should be healthy. I should be wealthy. I should have all these things. I'm doing good things. You are not holding up your end of the bargain. Or what if you looked at this list and your heart is still going, I'm pretty good. There's people in the room now that also, if you look at this list, go, man, I feel, I, I feel that. I feel the weight of that, and, and, and I want to repent. But there's also people in the room that go, uh, I'm just, I'm upset that I've broken the rules, and I feel guilty. So I actually just don't like the way that I feel right now. That is different. That's called legalism. Because you're actually not, you're, you're, you're actually not repentant or broken over the fact that you've grieved the heart of God. What you're doing is saying, I've just broken the rules, and I don't like the way I feel right now, and so I want to fix my guilt. Does that make sense? Even that, our repentance oftentimes needs to be repented of. And so when, when, when we look at all this stuff and, and we, we see all this, our response could be, 
we cannot stand in the presence of God when he does come with his judgment, when he does expose what's wrong with the world. But verse 6 says this, For, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Man, so comforting. So comforting. Here's why. <clears throat> the number one attribute about God that gives me the most comfort is his immutability, which means that God never changes. So listen, from Genesis to Malachi, read it sometime. That's the entire Old Testament. Read Genesis to Malachi. Look at the people of Israel. Look at the nation of Israel and go, does it look like they get a whole lot better? Then you have to read from Genesis to Malachi and, and, and walk away with this. Then that means that God is really faithful. God's grace is far more scandalous than anything that we ever know. And God does not change His mind on what He says. The most comforting thing to me is that God doesn't change. He doesn't change His mind about me. He doesn't change His mind about His children. He doesn't waver. He's not fickle. He's not up and down. He's consistent, consistent, steadfast, always. But do you know what this passage leads me to? And, and, and I hope it leads all of us to? Is that there was 400 years of silence after Malachi was written. And then another man appeared and he started to say, make way, make way. His name was John the Baptist and he was calling people to, to repentance and he was calling them to be baptized. And then a man named Jesus Christ stepped on the scene and he was actually baptized. Now we understand this about Jesus' life and the message of Christianity is that Jesus was absolutely perfect. He had no need to be baptized. Why was he baptized? Because in the moment that he was baptized, he was identifying himself with sinners. He was identifying himself with people's sin. Because it was symbolic. At the beginning of his life, or at the beginning of his ministry, he was baptized with water. Because at the end of his life, he was also going to be baptized as well. But before that, I think it's important to note this. That you know that when Jesus shows up in John's gospel on the scene, what's one of the first things that he does? Gets out a whip, and what does he do? Cleanses the temple. He's Jesus, God is walking around with the whip, turning over tables, and he's angry with this righteous anger. Think about that. Why was God in, 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 in flesh, in Jesus Christ, so angry, so indignant? Why? You have to understand what the temple was. That in the beginning of our Bible, God created humanity for one purpose, to have a relationship with humanity. God did not need something from us. He wanted to have a relationship with us. When we turn our back on God, what sin is, is we turn inward. We go, no, I want my own desires. I want what I want. And I'm going to chase after what my heart tells me that I ultimately need. And that's what they did. And then so they were cast out of God's presence. But here's the thing. God wanted to be with his creation. And so he made a way. That way was the tabernacle. That way was the temple. That was the way that God could be with his creation. But in the New Testament, what happened? It turned into this place where they were just using it to make money off of. It was a, 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 something for consumers just to be consumed. And it broke the heart of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he looked at the temple and said, wait a minute. This was a place that my father provided so we could be with creation and they could enjoy us and enjoy our presence and, and be with us. And now what it's turned into, and in many ways, now what the church has turned into is just a means for you to get something from God. 
God is no longer the prize. God is no longer what you want or desire. It's just about getting something from God. And so Jesus is angry. At the end of Jesus' life, there's a verse on the screen. We see this refinement, painful process coming to a head. Luke 12 says this, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have, a baptized, uh, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Here's what's happening. Is that we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God because when Jesus comes to bring just, justice and judgment, no one can stand. And so what had to happen was this. And the message of Christianity is this, is that Jesus stood in our place. You can either today, please listen, you can either today feel dirty, shameful, and guilty for the things you've done, and you can try to scrub yourself through external religious practices. You can try to clean yourself up to make yourself right with God, and you can stand in your own washing and your own cleansing, or you can stand today in the washing and cleansing that Jesus Christ provided on the cross for you. You can stand today trying to purify yourself, or you can stand and rest in the fact that Christ made you pure through His actions. You can stand today trying to wash yourself to get rid of what you feel inside, or you can stand today resting and trusting through faith that Jesus Christ washes and cleanses you through standing in your place. And the reality is, is He not just stood in our place, He hung in the place that we deserve to be. You can stand before God today, or if you did, you, you, you really have two choices. Please listen to this. Two choices. You can stand before God today and stand with your own insufficient payment, or you can stand with the full, complete, sufficient payment that Christ has made for you. That's what Christianity is. It's not some trophy that we work hard to earn the, and merit the favor and the grace and the love of God. It's something that God gives freely by His grace. And, 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 and where we could stand and say, but I'm working hard, I'm doing this, I'm doing good, God would say, that's not what Christianity is. And that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is my son's provided enough for you. He stood in the place you deserve to stand. You say, what about my pain in my life? And I would say this, because I know there's people in here that are hurting and going through pain and frustration. The gospel was never a promise to not have pain in life. The gospel has never promised to not have problems. The gospel has always been a promise that I will love you in the midst of your deepest pain and darkest problems of life and never forsake you. In fact, God could put it like this. The pain that you're experiencing is because you live in a fallen world that is filled with sinners amongst we all are. The pain is a result of your own sin, of your own actions. But my son's pain that he experienced too was a result of your own sin and your own actions. And when my son said that it's done and that it's finished, we can stand and we can rest confidently that not only did Jesus finish everything, but his perfect life, his pure life, his washed, clean life has become ours. That's what we stand in. And so, Psalm 73 ends with this, and I'll end with this today. After the psalmist goes off about his frustration, he says this, 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my, and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He says God is His portion. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the, near, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your works. God could simply ask this, how come I'm not enough? And when have I not become enough? Our cry for justice and our cry for mercy, I hope, is a cry to see that Jesus took the justice and the judgment that we deserve. He stood in our place. Though we cannot stand, he stood for us. Let's pray.